The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Saturday show where we do a best of all time interview and a best of the week. And our best of the week interview, we're going to put at the end based on some constructive criticism. Someone wrote in and said, well, I just listened to this stuff. If you play it again, I'm going to stop listening. So we will play one from the vaults, and it is an interview with Gilbert Gottfried. I interviewed Gilbert a couple of times, maybe three times even over the years, but I knew him pretty well. Not just from being on the podcast, but he was a parent in the same public elementary school that my oldest son went to. And in fact, my son and his son were in, you don't want to call it a band. They did, you know, they they played London Calling together in uh, one single glorious performance. And my other son did stand-up comedy with uh, Gilbert's son, Gilbert's son Max, who was named after Gilbert's father. At that time, Gilbert was on the road, as he always was, touring, and Max said, my dad's not here, but I'm going to do an impression of him, and then he did that, what, what, it's a wheel of cheese, and uh, there was a laugh in the audience, and I said, I know that laugh, and it was Paul Schaefer, Gilbert's best friend, or one of his best friends, maybe really his best friend is Paul Schaefer, and Paul came out to support Gilbert's son doing comedy, and therefore he was in the audience laughing at my son, who was probably 12 at the time, doing comedy. I'm like, this is, my son doesn't know it, he has no context for knowing anything about Paul Schaefer, but to get the Paul Schaefer in the background laughter, as one would on Letterman, is quite a glorious thing. Gilbert Gottfried is also, I'm going to, you know, he had his persona and his off stage, off mic persona wasn't like that, but it wasn't normal. Gilbert Gottfried was just about the strangest person I've ever met. And like I said, I met him six, seven, eight, nine times. I always had to be reintroduced to him. Gilbert, you were on my show. Gilbert, our sons were doing these activities together. And his wife, Tara, who's the greatest and was the best mom at the elementary school, literally raised so much money for the school, would always so nicely say, Gilbert, you remember Mike? And then she would explain, it's not you. He literally remembers no one. One time, before I knew this, one time I was riding a city bike and I saw him on the street. And at this point, he's, you know, I was not I was using the criteria, would I stop and say hi to any dad in the school, not just a comic whose stuff I love, uh, who's a celebrity? And I said, yeah, I think I would if I had as many interactions uh, in a different part of town. So I stopped uh, the bike and I rolled up to him and I said, hi, Gilbert, it's uh, me, Mike. Uh, we, You were on the gist and he panicked. I tried not to be aggressive, but he's so clearly panicked and he fished around his pocket for a phone. He's like, hold on, hold on. I th- I think I'm getting a phone call. And he faked a phone call in front of me. I'm like, oh, this is better than if we just had like a nice normal person chat. This is a better anecdote that I haven't told until now to honor the man in his passing. And by the way, any amount of insensitivity I could show now, Gilbert would have been there for it. He was the king of too soon. The Washington Post wrote an article about how Gilbert did not believe there was such a thing as too soon. And they wrote, Gottfried's attitude toward the idea of too much or too far is likely the reason he never achieved the same level of mainstream success as his comedic peers, such as Jerry Seinfeld or Dennis Miller. No, that is totally wrong. Jerry Seinfeld or Dennis Miller Normal to handsome looking men with good heads of hair whose comedy was about little life moments, making an arm 
aqueduct in the shower or what socks might say when interacting with each other in the hamper. Gilbert, in his first Letterman appearance, got on stage and talked about the awkwardness of not eating all day because there's a party. There's going to be cheese at the party. Food, wall to wall food. Well, would you like a pizza? No, no, I can't. I can't. I'm going to, this food. From the door to the window, food. All they have is food. Will there be women at this? No, 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 it's food. How would you like some organically grown berries? No, no, I can't, I can't. Too filling. It's way too filling. And then going up and eating the cheese and eating the black wax on the cheese. This is just not endearing to mainstream, (laughs) normal America. Uh, It's not that Gilbert wasn't hysterical. It's that that sort of act persona, look, sound, you know, that gets cast as the cartoon bird that doesn't get uh, nine years of a sitcom or the anchor desk on Weekend Update. The last thing I'll say about Gilbert before I throw it to this interview is that he had a great podcast, still does. Many episodes, the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast, and it was oriented towards podcast guests that just wouldn't appear anywhere else, you know, mainly because they were mostly, you know, averaged around age 71. And Gilbert was obsessed with old Hollywood. So, so many stories on his show where he'd he'd be talking to a star of yesteryear or some expert about that area and, you know, just break out, Bella Lugosi was at the Copa. Larry Storch was once telling me statements like, you know who we always wanted to have? And for any other podcast, the answer would be, I don't know, Malcolm Gladwell or Roxanne Gay or Jason Bateman. But with Gilbert, always wanted to interview Barbara Eden. (laughs) I love him. All right. So we'll follow with a uh, spiel that I did on Thursday about the so-called problems of British elections. But first, an interview with Gilbert Gottfried from 2014. The world is worse off without him, even though he never really noticed so much of the world around him. So I'm sitting here with a man who needs no introduction, or maybe a better way of saying this, I was thinking about it, if uh, he were to go on 60 Minutes but have his identity concealed, but the thing that screws up the voice didn't work, he'd be the most immediately recognizable person around. You'd be the worst FBI witness. Yeah, yeah, basically, uh, if I went on there, the CIA would assassinate me in two seconds. (laughs) That's maybe their plan all along. Yeah. (laughs) They've heard heard some of the jokes. (laughs) They heard the Hefner roast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, of course, Gilbert Gottfried, who has a list of credits uh, as long as uh, his arm and my arm. But I want to talk about his... As long as my penis. I've I've done two TV shows. I don't want to sell you short. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Gilbert has a great podcast. In fact, it's an amazing, colossal podcast. And he talks to comedians and people who love old showbiz. So at first I thought, okay, this is, there are a couple comedian podcasts. It's either comedians talking about their feelings. That's, uh, that's yeah. not this one. <laughs> My feeling is, can I get the hell out of here? I wanna... yes. And sometimes yeah. it's comedians, you know, riffing for an hour and 15 minutes and maybe like four or five jokes land in that hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I figured out after, you know, six episodes in, I'm like, I get what the theme of this podcast is. It's your obsession with movies and old showbiz and kind of everything 1974 and prior. It's awful, too, because it's like I make out a wish list of people I want on the show, and each week I have to cross off names. Like <laughs> You're saying the Grim Reaper. Uh, comes yeah, in. yeah. Double yeah. booked. In yeah. fact, we were originally going to call the show the Before It's Too Late show. <laughs> but then it would be hard to get guests because you'd have to go up to them and say, hey, you want to be on my podcast? Because I, I think you're going to be dead soon. You have a booker and you have an actuary who's working yes. the table <laughs> saying, mm, well, you know, Pat McCormick's a smoker. <laughs> yeah, like if we see vultures circling a house, we better rush and interview that person right, right so, away. And I, t- I also think, Lee, you know, if you go through the list, maybe Billy West is the youngest guest oh, you've had yes. on. And so I would imagine that a big conversation after Would You Like to Be on My Podcast would be, now let me tell you what a podcast is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, I barely know. <laughs> I, I know the term podcast, and I figure you watch it on your computer, I guess. <laughs> on the show, I interviewed Larry Storch oh, from yeah. F-Drew, yeah. who's like 92, and he wasn't the, the oldest that so was that Marty Allen? Was Marty Allen? Oh, the oldest? I think Marty Allen might have had him beat. My parents, I was just talking to them yesterday. I was like, Oh, yeah, we saw Marty Allen in Las Vegas. Great show. M- Marty <laughs> Allen still works. Yeah, he still works. And he was working it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. oh, absolutely. <laughs> Now, Marty Allen said something funny in that his act is clean and that his act's always been clean. And that's one of the reasons Ed Sullivan likes him. And you said, can I, will you tell a joke to me that, you know, that he told you that was a dirty joke and he wouldn't do it. That, that's so funny about these people in the business who've been in the business for years. A lot of them, like I heard dirty jokes from Henny Youngman off stage and I've heard a lot of dirty jokes from Marty Allen, but boy, you try to get him to say it in front of an. They still like the guy's like uh, two hundred, yeah, and he still feels like, well, I've got this image. <laughs> I, I could get blackballed from the Sullivan. Oh show. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it who flashed him a, a, a middle finger? Oh, and that, oh was uh, it Jackie, Jackie Mason? Mason. And, and that really did happen. Yeah. It was banned from the Sullivan and Show. And I watched that clip, and he yeah. really didn't give him the middle finger, but uh, it was, yeah, he was going, because someone was uh, giving him a finger, the index finger, to wrap it up. Right. And he was going, you know, this guy's pointing this way, and now he's pointing down, and he's pointing upwards, and he's going this one, and then this hand is over here. And uh, and Ed Sullivan thought this was the worst thing ever. John Biner, who I should have on the show. I yes. I love to show time. Bizarre with yes. John Biner. Great show. John Biner told me he was on the show when Ed Sullivan totally lost it uh, that night on uh, Jackie Mason. 
and he said that Ed Sullivan was going, Why well, you cocksucker, you motherfucker, you go to my fucking show and and you uh, you're gonna you're gonna put the fucking finger up there. <laughs> <laughs> so in the history of entertainment has there ever been a bigger square than ed sullivan who was as important a tastemaker and kind of cutting edge with the axe he broke yeah and and his whole personality was his complete lack of a personality why did that work i don't know it it became his personality that he was completely had no talent whatsoever he had no delivery and he felt uncomfortable on camera and that's why his <laughs> arms would do these spastic moves like a robot thing they'd move back and forward and it looked like some machine and that became his personality yeah i guess you know if you don't have a personality at least be distinctive and if everyone does an impression of you you know you're doing something it's oh, not yeah. right but memorable and back then too there were people who controlled everything and ed sullivan was one and you'd have like these people like um Hedda Hopper and, um, oh, who, oh, Walter Winchell. Yeah. And who was the other one? There was Hedda Hopper. The other big gossip columnist, right? Yeah. 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 There was one that she was in competition with. And those were like the three. Yeah. And, and, and they it, destroyed lives. Yeah. Like like with a, with a with a phrase, you know, a confirmed bachelor, that's it. That everyone oh, knows that yes. guy's gay. Yes. Yeah. And and it's like if you uh didn't bow down to them, if you saw them, they would they would kill you. Yeah. And now they'd be meaningless. Right. They'd be like like Every single person in the world has a blog and has a Twitter account. Like, who cares? Right. Um, now, I wanted to ask you about comedy, and I wanted to connect it to your love of old uh, showbiz. It does strike me that in the old days, there were definitely more of the comedian who really was his persona. Like, Buddy Hackett just was Buddy Hackett. He wasn't a guy who told jokes. Yes. He was this character named Buddy Hackett, Henny Youngman. And you're a little more like that than you are like Louis C.K., you know, a guy who'll go on stage yeah. and, you know, people will say, I, oh, yeah, I could totally see that I've guy. I've always no, said, I'm, I'm the new Buddy Hackett. <laughs> like, hey, lady, where you get that hat from? <laughs> but when you were coming up with comedy, was the idea to, all right, let me think of a hundred great jokes or Obviously, it was, but crafting a persona. That was part of... Yeah, yeah, I never consciously worked on it. It's like whenever people ask me about that, I always feel like, to me, I've been doing it a bunch of years, and then one day you wake up and go, oh, I've been doing it this way for a long time. And it's kind of like, to me, it's like stopping someone on the street and going, hey, you know the way you walk and you carry your coffee cup and you kind of swing your arm and then you pronounce things as, how did you work on that? You know, it's like they didn't. They just. Uh... Part genetic, part. Yeah. Now, the most common kind of question that you ask on the Amazing Colossal Podcast is you get a guest who probably knows, you know, Dick Cavett was maybe talking to someone or Larry Storch, as you say, and the question goes like this. I heard that once, insert name Chad Everett, oh, yeah. 
I heard that once. <laughs> crazy story. Is that true? Now, my question to you is, do you want confirmation or do you want all these crazy tales that you heard to be true? I want them to be true. Yeah. I, I've heard so many and I want them all to be true. What is the one that's confirmed that was so awesome that it was true? And what was the one tale of uh, showbiz lore that has been demythologized that really yeah. hurt you? Like the modern day ones are bullshit, like the Richard Gear with the gerbil. Yeah. You know, because he had a, you know when one's not true when you hear it with six different celebrities. Oh, oh, the one that always annoyed me also that happened with every single black celebrity uh, was in an elevator. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, just fill in the blank. If you wrote it down, you'd say fill in black celebrity. And this was like a white couple is on an elevator, and a famous black celebrity says, hit four, and they hit the floor, thinking he's a black guy uh, robbing them. And why are the hotels always booking the black celebrities on the fourth floor? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> you figure the manager of the Hilton leans yeah, over and like says, listen, Amos we've had, and Andy we've had are some all... trouble, put them on sex. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um... So it was Billy West who used the phrase about him, but I wonder if you've said it about yourself. Well, he said about you, born too soon. Oh, yes. Or was it born too late? Born of a different generation that you feel more connected to things like Lon Chaney and silent movies than even things of your generation. It's kind of like I, I was watching, you know, now one of those cable channels, they had, um, bionic woman on. And she has to protect a nightclub comedian <laughs> played by um, Donald O'Connor, who's a nightclub comedian. There's a hit on him from the mob. And the mobster is this old character actor, Don Gordon. And I was watching it, and it was, of course, horrible, as all those 70s shows were. The music. The acting, the filming, the stories, they were all horrible. But I remember thinking, God, I would have loved to have played either one of those characters, (laughs) either the Donald O'Connor part or the Don Gordon tough guy. Or the bionic woman. Oh, the bionic woman. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I want to ask you uh, one more strain of questions. You've done so much uh, work in cartoons, often playing a bird. How many bird characters have you played? Oh, my God. I I just recently, on an episode of Big Brother, they they built a gigantic penguin (laughs) to shout the orders to them, and they called me as the voice of the penguin. You're the bird. But was your first bird in Aladdin, Jafar's Uh, bird? Yes. Now... Robin Williams was the voice of Genie, but I don't know. Did you have any scenes together? Uh, n- there may have been a scene where he like zaps me or something. Yeah. But we I, even even when you have scenes with the other person, uh, you're just reading your lines. Right, right. But uh, had you uh, worked with Robin Williams I, at all? I had never worked with huh. him once during Aladdin. I I've bumped into him in the clubs all the time because. The, the thing about Aladdin that I think is true is that that was the first where Disney went out and got a celebrity 
or two celebrities, yes. the case may be, and they animated around him. So, so oh, Robin yeah. Williams would improv. Now, does that ever happen with you? Do they say? Do they? Do you see like either the visuals reflecting your voice, or do they ever say you riff and then we'll animate? Well, in in Aladdin, they did have <clears throat> a video camera on. And uh, they'd film the way you moved around uh, your facial expressions and actually animated it to that. Whereas you see these really awful cheap cartoons where it's like thick line. The mouth is thick line, thin line, thick line. (laughs) I still think if they did Aladdin a year later, the only person I could see being in it would have been Robin Williams. After that, it became major stars. Yeah. And then when you watch those movies and you hear it with the major stars, you're going, does that really make a difference on a cartoon? Is the seven-year-old saying, yeah, I'm really buying Oprah Winfrey as Charlotte's. And that was the worst. I think Charlotte's Web had everyone who wasn't supposed to be a voice actor as a celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the little kids are, yeah, aren't going like, oh, he's got Morgan Freeman in there. Yeah. Well, he could have been the penguin instead of you. He could have been. He, he's yes. worked with penguins. Yeah. <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is up. It's out. It's everywhere you hear a podcast. And his Twitter account is at Real Gilbert. And my website, GilbertGottfried.com. You said already. So right. See, I don't listen. And his to telephone you. number is 917 <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And now the spiel. The prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, has broken the rules and broken the law. Well, some rules are made to be broken, just generally not the ones that you yourself make, which is what happened. And it's not just Johnson who is fired for his transgressions, going to parties during lockdown, but also the UK's chancellor of the exchequer, Rishi Sunak, who failed to exchequer himself before he exrecked himself. The BBC's Barry Gibbon has more. The police say they broke the COVID laws they brought in. Both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor received fixed penalty notices. For Boris Johnson, more could be on the way. Both men told the Commons they had not broken the rules. They did deny it. Let's go to the audio tape. First Johnson. All guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. And now Sunak. I did not attend any parties. But the police have found otherwise the two most senior members of the UK administration and incidentally neighbors have apologized, paid their fines and asked the British public for forgiveness as they seek to move on from Partygate. Predictably, the opposition Labour Party doesn't like it, but there's only one party that matters and it's not the one with suitcases full of alcohol during lockdown. It's the Tory or Conservative Party, and those folks are behind Boris. And really, why wouldn't they be? The British public understands and, to a great extent, accommodates itself to the man's, shall we say, quirks, antics, failings, carelessness, dashed-off foppery, casual heedlessness, self-satisfaction, solipsism. This is really turning into a terrible campaign commercial. There's also the issue of, well, if they sack Boris, who's going to be the next PM? And up until a few weeks ago, the top candidate was Rishi Sunak. But now, in addition to the party attendance, it was revealed that his wife has not been paying taxes, which 
is legal. His wife has non-domiciled status. She is a nom-dom. That's what they call it. And it's a scandal because, well, I don't think it's a scandal, but they say it's a scandal. Being a nom-dom, it's a legal provision of British law where a wealthy person like Akshata Murthy, heiress to an Indian tech fortune, can claim she doesn't live in the UK, even though she owns a few houses there and resides in the aforementioned 11 Downing Street. The coverage seems to come down to it's a bad look. And even though Murthy is entitled to the tax breaks, she doesn't have to take them. The BBC quoted Professor of Accounting Richard Murphy. His wife is saving tax. So I'm not even saying she's avoiding tax. She's simply saving tax by using this legal option that is available to her, but which she doesn't have to exercise. And that is the big question here. That seems like a small, big question. Not taking deductions you're entitled to? The argument there goes something like, Murty's a nom-dom, but that doesn't mean the public has to be submissive. However, if anyone from the Labour Party criticizes Murty or Sunak on these grounds, well, they themselves open up to the charge, hey, you once took a deduction. Still, you can expect the British tabloids to generate headlines. Here's a few for free. Nom-dom, time-bomb, facepalm, ex-checkered past, or in the pro-Tory tabloids, Murty stays sturdy through nom-dom drama. There's also a, well, let's call it a subfuffle, not even rising to the status of a kerfuffle about Sunak having a U.S. green card. The allegation not being that Sunak avoided British taxes, but, well, here's the allegation. Although got no tax breaks, he may have continued to pay taxes to the U.S. government while in office here. The guy's a patriot, just to this country, not his. Still, Sunak's star has dimmed, and Johnson's chance of survival seems a lot better than the Moskva's. Part of the reason why he's up in the polls is that he showed up in Kiev last week and strolled around next to Vladimir Zelensky. The Ukrainian prime minister did not wear a bulletproof vest while Johnson donned Zelensky as his armor, and it worked. The statesmanship boosted Boris in public opinion, and once, a few weeks ago, it seemed like a tough spot to wriggle out of, now seems like just another of old Boris's party tricks. I'm reminded of a story another politician liked to tell. That politician was Mario Cuomo. So there was a king, and this king imposed the death penalty on a prisoner. And the prisoner said, no, your majesty, you can't do that. If you give me six weeks, I can teach your horse to fly. Wait, you can? Yes, but I need six weeks to do it. And the king agreed, but then said, if it didn't work, I'm going to put you to death. So his fellow prisoners asked this guy, wait a minute, how can you deliver on that promise? How can you teach a horse to fly? And the prisoner said, I know that, and you know that. But who knows? In six weeks, I might die anyway. In six weeks, the king might die. In six weeks, the horse might die. And who knows, in six weeks, that horse might just learn how to fly. And I think you all sense the moral of that story. It's that the horse did indeed learn to fly, establish residence in India, and never had to pay taxes again. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the just associate producer. He's also established residency in an Alaskan indoor sports complex. It's the Nom Dom Gnome Dome. Joel Patterson, just senior producer, is funded by the non-domiciled community to blog about them under an assumed name. It's a Nom Dom Nom Diplom Spawn Con. Michelle Pasco runs a tight financial ship here at Peachfish Productions, but years ago, she lost money financing a meet-cute comedy about a non-domiciled resident 
who gets asked to the end of the year dance. It failed at the box office and Variety said, nom dom prom rom com bomb. The gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast, who might be regretting that collaboration now. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Deperu, Nam Dom Peru, and thanks for listening.